2: Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. Today, my guest is Spencer Critchley, author of the book Patriots of Two Nations, Why Trump was Inevitable and What Happens Next published by McDavid Media, out now. Welcome, Spencer.
1: Oh, it's good to be with you, Kirk.
2: All right. Well, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Uh, To start off, what we'd like to do is have the author, yourself in this case, tell us about yourself, and in particular, in relationship to the subject of this book. So what's your background as it led you here?
1: Sure. Well, um, my background is in all different forms of media and communication. I actually started out as a songwriter and producer in the music business way back. Uh, But over the years, I've worked in journalism, um, interactive media in Silicon Valley, um, basically all forms of communication, and I think all forms of media. And At a certain point, I started doing political communication consulting after getting interested in politics during the 2004 election, actually. And eventually that led me to working on both Obama campaigns, and I helped out a little with the Hillary Clinton campaign as well. It was actually election night 2016, um, and I was as shocked as anybody else when Hillary lost to Donald Trump that got me thinking along the lines that finally led to this book. I, I was trying to make sense of how we could have come to this point. Um, and my research ended up taking me back to the founding of this country. And in my case, the writing of this book.
2: Right. Right. It's uh it's just, it's interesting. Um, uh, you, uh, I, Uh, You started off as a songwriter and and producer. I'm very fascinated by that, by the whole music industry, as I suppose many people are. How did you get into politics from that? Was it uh, I mean, I suppose there are tons of links between um, the music industry and politics, but um, I'd be interested to hear your story.
1: Sure. Well, it it didn't seem to make much sense at the time. In retrospect, it does. I can see my whole life is is uh, based on communication in one form or another, where it's through music or journalism or writing uh, or even computer code. In some cases, um, I got into politics uh really, almost by accident, a friend of mine invited me to help out the local D- Democratic Party here in Monterey County, California, and because he knew of my background in communication and all these different forms. And I was kind of holding my nose because like a lot of people, I kind of assumed it was, you know, politics was a seamy business full of power hungry weasels, basically. Yeah. Uh, and I was doing it really out of a sense of civic obligation. And to my surprise, I discovered some just terrific people who actually were pursuing public service for all the right reasons, including our local member of Congress at the time, Sam Farr, who became quite a mentor for me. And it struck me that here was an opportunity to apply my communication skills and the creativity that I had always been drawn to in connection with that. In a way that would actually make a difference for the world. So, my volunteer work led to me being hired to work on Sam Farr's campaigns and some local elected officials' campaigns. And and when I the first time I saw one of my candidates get elected and know that a really good person had gotten elected, uh, or that a school bond measure had been passed in in one case that raised ninety million dollars to to uh, repair some terribly uh, rundown schools uh, in a working class neighborhood in Salinas, California, this was really inspiring. And then when I got asked to join the Obama campaign in 2008, uh, that was one of the most inspiring experiences of my life. And, uh, so actually for the first time in my life, working on the Obama campaign, I found something that I found as deeply satisfying as way back. I had always found music, uh, because in in its own way it was creative, and the idea of serving something so big and so important was every bit as inspiring as as music had ever been.
2: Wow! Yeah, that that's a great story. Now, in no way to undermine it, it reminds of uh, a, a counterpoint that Pete Townsend made once. I remember uh, he said uh, he he was a um, sort of. Um, Dismissing all the kind of political activists activism in the nineteen eighties, and saying, uh, to "Tell me what's more important. What, what's changed the world more than a guitar?" Uh, <laughs> but,
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm very sympathetic to both sides of that argument. Pete Townsend's one of my uh, heroes. Um, And I actually worked, you know, in my own musical career. Of course, I have a lot of experience with, I was a guitar player, was my first instrument. And one of my jobs was working with Thomas Dolby uh, Mm. at a company called Beatnik, uh, running the creative department at uh, Beatnik, which, which was a fascinating internet company. Yeah, he was um, really then, cutting edge in the 1980s, wasn't oh, he? Oh, absolutely. He's he's a brilliant person, and uh, he's also one of my musical heroes. As it, ha- as it happens, I, it was such a thrill to get to work so closely with him, um, and also just a brilliant thinker. But I'm, you know, I, I grew up with that feeling, that belief that a guitar could change the world, that music could change the world, which really dates to the 60s, mm-hmm. and in many ways, unfortunately, it proved really not to be true. Um, You know, George Harrison, to cite another great 60s musical figure, uh, once said, I think that the summer of love lasted for about five minutes and (laughs) it very quickly got uh, absorbed into the giant marketing machinery of the entertainment industry. And if if you look at the difference between 60s idealism in the music business versus where we are now with things like Super Bowl halftime shows and American Idol, I actually mentioned this in my book, it's a very different situation. And I often feel actually that rock music and other forms of popular music have really just become vehicles of consumer culture. I have very mixed feelings about the music industry on that score.
2: Yeah, that, that would be a fascinating discussion in and of itself, but, but let's but let's get to your book uh, because those issues are are really uh, interesting. And, And in fact, as you say, you do touch on them in your book. So, so let's start off with the basic fundamentals. What do you mean by two nations and why is it important?
1: Right. Well, as I researched the history uh, in connection with, to me, this incredible development of Donald Trump becoming elected president, I realized that the division that we're seeing now does go back to the beginning of the country. And I concluded that really the United States has never been united. And it's always actually been two nations occupying one territory. And the ultimate source of that division, I believe, dates to the Enlightenment uh, of the 18th century. the Enlightenment, of course, was the triumph of reason, uh, as exemplified by Enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire and Montesquieu and John Locke. And the founders of the country of the United States explicitly based the design for the United States on enlightenment principles of reason, including John Locke's social contract, which heavily influenced Jefferson uh, in the writing of the Declaration of Independence and and heavily influenced the Constitution. Um, They assumed, you know, it feels presumptuous to criticize the thinking of towering figures like the founders of the United States, but I think they made a fundamental Mm -hmm. mistake. They assumed that the triumph of reason was final, and that they could create a new form of nation, the civic nation, meaning as a nation founded on a social contract instead of on uh, ethnicity, basically uh, a tribal mm-hmm. identity. And they assumed this was the path of history going forward. What they did not appreciate, I believe, was the strength of the counter enlightenment, and and the counter enlightenment was the resistance movement to the enlightenment. And it's almost been lost to history, at least as far as the average person is concerned. Scholars are certainly aware of it. But our education and our cultural tradition assumes that the Enlightenment is the worldview, essentially, that science tells us what's true, you know, and we use facts and logic and reason to debate debate to solve disagreements, et cetera. The counter-Enlightenment, and there were serious counter-Enlightenment thinkers, argued that Reason is a very small form of truth. Yes, it can tell you what's mathematically true or what's scientifically true, but it doesn't capture the incredible richness and complexity of real life. And for that, you need faith, uh, tradition, art and culture, and yes, ethnic identity. Counter-Enlightenment thinkers believed there was something essential to being a German uh, or being French or English or Italian or whatever that could not be uh, you know, sort of dissolved into this universal set of principles describing human nature, the way that you can have universal principles of physics or chemistry. So it, I believe it's the, the, the implications of, of these two worldviews are that you actually define truth differently and you define what the source of authority should be differently. And if you fast forward to the present day and you look at these arguments between pro-Trump and anti-Trump people, where they'll often report, "My God, it's like the other person's living in a different reality." My conclusion is they are living in a different reality. So I'm a you know somebody from the Enlightenment legacy, I'm, and I'm a political liberal. So people like me w- will offer facts and logic to Trump supporters, for example, about the coronavirus pandemic, or about things the president has said that are obviously untrue and which are shown to be untrue by you know videotaped evidence or written evidence, and find that it bounces off his supporters. Well, a lot of the explanation for that is whether they know it or not, I believe his supporters are operating within this counter-enlightenment worldview where loyalty to a leader in a sort of pre-enlightenment mode, it's more really from the Middle Ages and before, and faith, whether it's religious faith or or just f- faith in intuition uh, and tradition and, and ethnic identity and culture, will easily trump, so to speak— facts and logic. And that is a lot of, I think ultimately that's what's going on here and it has many different aspects, but I think that's the sort of umbrella concept that captures, um, how American history led us to this moment.
2: Yeah. I, I, um, sympathize a lot with, um, your argument and your journey as well, because I too, you know, was educated and, and grew up in a, in a big city. I was Toronto and, oh, um, you I, know, I went lived to,
1: in Toronto for for seven years, I think, or more. That was, was in Toronto for quite I, a while. I see
2: your CBC background. Yeah, yeah, a wonderful yeah. yeah I, I was there in the seventies and eighties, and uh, and and you know, I mentioned Pete Townsend. I remember when they did their final farewell concert at Maple Leaf Gardens. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a musician. I might have been at the did same you? concert. Yeah, exactly i'm i'm sh- i'm sure we we must have crossed crossed paths at uh, several points um and yeah i i i grew up so much in a, a a liberal consciousness uh you know and and the whole idea growing up was that conservatives are stupid right. and that if yeah and, and if you um you know if you were at all concerned about humanity or you know books or um anything um you know, cultural or artistic or of, of the higher faculties, then obviously you were a liberal because, uh, conservatives, they liked sports and, uh, you know, um, you know, read the, the stupid newspapers, the tabloids and, um, and, and, and there was this, you know, real entrenched prejudice and, mm-hmm. and this, you know, looking down. And, and I, I was totally in, into that. And, and, um, and then, and, one of the things that got—I mean—postmodernism was interesting for me because it, it actually draws a lot on the counter enlightenment, which a lot of people yes. don't understand, and and that's kind—it's of, kind of been swept under the, the carpet. But definitely, um, Foucault and Derrida and um, and and these uh, thinkers were drawing on um, counter enlightenment yes. ideas. So that was introducing some stuff to me, like Nietzsche and other things. And then Camille Paglia in the 1980s, I just fell in love with her. I, I just love Camille Paglia, and she introduced me to the whole sort of decadence and 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 rom, uh, you know romantic movement and and this counter enlightenment in the arts, and which we always knew. And in the music industry, for example, it's, yeah. it's pervasive, but we don't really like like even things like um, the pre-Christian traditions and the 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 sort of occult symbols and all these things. Uh, uh, it, it, uh, you know, like uh, Zeppelin and all their, um, mm-hmm. you know, symbols, and and uh, Jimmy Page with Aleister Crowley and, and and all this stuff. And Tolkien. And it, it, yep, yeah, Tolkien, and it, it goes back uh, to this, and but it's kind of hidden. It's, it's 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 occulted. And then when I went to, when I did my PhD, I read for my PhD at the University of Hull, and and we had one of the country's leading conservative thinkers in the department. um, it, I was uh, I was amazed. I just couldn't believe uh, this whole world of thought, very very interesting, and and many of which you you talk about in in the book, was just sort of hidden from me. I I never knew about you know all the varieties of of you know counter enlightenment thought, uh, particularly coming out of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, it, it was not stupid in the least. I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, and it was extremely influential. Uh, and and I felt really angry. <laughs> I felt really angry that I was deprived of, of this exciting knowledge, in fact, you know, and um, I, I, I don't know if, if you felt the same sort of... A, no, that's such thing. an
1: interesting, so that's so interesting. That really parallels my development a lot. And, you know, I remain a liberal, but um, I I think a much more aware liberal, and mm-hmm. I like you grew up with that set of assumptions that if once somebody became educated and freed their mind from prejudice and ignorance, of course they'd be a liberal. And it it used yeah. to it used to puzzle me that apparently intelligent, educated people were not liberals, and I wondered how could that possibly happen. Yeah, and I I still run into this very frequently, and my fellow liberals are unaware, I think, the extent to which they actually themselves are living inside an intellectual and cultural bubble, and how they come across as incredibly arrogant. (laughs) And, and, you know, we frequently hear this, yeah, and condescending, we frequently hear this from the right, and we arrogantly dismiss it. (laughs) We essentially (laughs) say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, that's ridiculous. (laughs) Yes, yes. And you know when you hear stupid, hateful stuff coming from from people on the right, it makes it easy to dismiss it, you know, or bigoted and racist and and all all the worst of it. But the thing is, there are, as you say, very thoughtful people who are conservatives. I actually don't think Trumpism has much to do with classical conservatism. It's it's a you know ethno nationalist populism really. But um, but when we hear there are intelligent conservatives who do draw on a, a, a counter enlightenment tradition. It's certainly going back to Edmund Burke, uh, who was horrified by the French Revolution as an example of, you know, enlightenment reason gone mad. And and to that extent, at least I agree with him. I mean, the Jacobins were horrible. Uh, (laughs) And you're also right. I feel that all of us are drawn to the counter enlightenment, even if we think of ourselves as enlightenment thinkers. And once we start to look at the way we really think and what our actual assumptions and beliefs are, we realize that they're mutually contradictory in many ways. So those of us who believe in reason as the path to tolerance and inclusion and equality and democracy itself ultimately and i do believe in all those things also have to take account of the fact that we love romantic poetry and the romantics were very much counter-enlightenment figures william blake hated the enlightenment absolutely (laughs) i thought it had produced the dark satanic mills of the industrial revolution Mm -hmm. and and throughout as you say you know the 60s counterculture with the uh reinvigoration of magic uh, and, you know, um, tribalism, spirituality, spirituality, drug taking in the search for transcendent experiences and almost the fetishization of traditional tribalistic cultures, uh, the romantic views of native Americans or other native cultures around the world, even, you know, rock and roll, we were talking about rock music earlier. Well, that was essentially white people looking for some kind of counter enlightenment connection to something more that's soulful right. and then we have a form of music and i mentioned this in the book as well there's a form of music called soul which as i say was kind right. of named for what white people felt was missing from their culture
2: that's right that's right and i mean uh you know a, a, another thing too is um uh, that that's part of that now i 'll tell you in two thousand and eight we might have found ourselves in, uh, in, in different places when Obama first came i i was I was totally um, uh, amazed at, at first and, and impressed and, and whatnot especially when when uh, Hillary was still the the front runner and, and Obama was just this figure out of out nowhere. I was fascinated by uh, by that whole movement but you know I, i'll tell you one thing that that really um, uh was solidified for me was the liberal reaction to Sarah Palin um the, it was such a visceral um hatred for her and uh, and and I was amazed here was a woman who was the um most popular governor in the country who fought corruption on her you know in her own party and um and you know was a young um woman uh, you know in a position of power and the feminists hated her they couldn't stand her um and 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 it wasn't rational it was not right ra- and the reaction was not rational um it was it, it was visceral and it was tribal mm-hmm. and 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 then I you know, I it, it really emphasized to me the tribal markers of liberalism. It, it, that they like to say they're rational and, and scientific oriented and evidence based and et cetera, et cetera. But if you don't have the right accent, if you didn't go mm-hmm. to the right schools and you know, she had five children, oh my oh God. My God. <laughs> you know, and um, these the sort, you know, and she believed in God. She didn't read the right newspapers. She didn't read at all. You know, all these things. It, it, these are actually tribal markers that that the liberal tribe, if you want to put it that way, are totally oblivious about, and no, and so they, they lack that self awareness. Um, you know, which which I think you are. You know, you you are really kind of uh, pointing to in some ways although you count you're, you're concentrating on the counter enlightenment here but but you're bringing it within a, at least that uh, frame I, i'd like to hear your comment on that
1: no absolutely um and a lot of the uh, goal i th- i would say the goal i have for the book primarily is to help enlightenment thinkers expand their minds to mm-hmm. picture what it's like to think completely differently and and be led to greater compassion for people who think so differently from them and who live so differently. Um, and I, a lot of it is that we are, we are raised in this enlightenment framework and it's as if we're asking fish to imagine what it's like to walk on land. Uh, yeah. yeah, And it, it, it's so far outside your experience, or as I say in the book, I quote Wittgenstein saying, if a lion could talk, we would not be able to understand him. Meaning that The lion might be able to learn to speak our language, but his experience of life would be so different. It would make no sense to us. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, what I'm trying to tell Enlightenment liberals, as well as moderate conservatives, we might call all of these people sort of small L classical liberals, um, that in many ways we created the conditions for Trump or we helped to create them. There are many, many uh, factors and we can't take responsibility for all of it, but we certainly contributed and a lot of it was through this inability to see how people could think so differently and and our our really elitist dismissal of people who thought so differently mm-hmm. and some of that and 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 what that does is first of all it makes the average person who's you know the average Trump supporter is just an average american really they're a lot of them are really very nice people i think they're very seriously mistaken um but it it leaves them open, since we're not addressing their concerns, to a bunch of con artists uh, to come in and seize that space and talk to them in a language that they respond to, which is what people yeah. like Trump and Sarah Palin uh, do. I think ultimately Sarah Palin is a con artist as well. Uh, but but I think you're also right that liberals' um, dislike of somebody like Sarah Palin is a form of class-based contempt that they're not even aware of. And I think one of the things that happened in recent history in the United States is thanks to the incredible boom in prosperity following World War II, which is really, I mean, I have a graph in my book which shows that suddenly um, prosperity went vertical after being almost flat for most of human history, prosperity growth in the Western world, especially in the United States. So this enabled along with various government programs, a whole generation of Americans to go to college. And I think one of the uh, uh, results of that was that Democrats, traditionally the party of working Americans, kind of lunch bucket Americans, lost connection with their working class roots double quick and became embarrassed by them. That's and right. I've often been struck throughout my life. Actually, when I first went to college, I was struck by how snooty and arrogant suddenly everybody was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these were, and this was in Canada, you know, which is a yeah, okay. very, very yeah. you know, center-left um, country. I went to yeah. Dalhousie University, uh, was the first right. place I went, and um, in Nova Scotia. And I, I was struck by suddenly how all these. You know, it's not like Nova Scotia is a hotbed. And of, you know, the upper yeah, exactly. of elitist, you know, upper class lifestyle. Right. <laughs> if you saw yeah. a fancy car when I was growing up, you'd talk about it for a week. <laughs> but right. yeah. but yeah, um, yeah.
2: all their parents are fishermen, but they were pretending they were yeah, but suddenly uh, <laughs> the we it's like
1: yeah, it's suddenly like we're in the salons of Paris or something. And yeah, um and you know, a year before we were in high school and and that has always struck me. And this, you're right, this dismissiveness of working class Americans, unless they're of the right sort. Yes. You know, and often that, you know, and by that, I mean, they, they sort of um, match our um, ideological assumptions about what what the working class should be like. Um, That's right. Many years ago, Tom Wolfe, uh, you know, wrote the, um, I always have to struggle to remember the exact title, but it's the Electric kool-aid tangerine dream flake baby that's uh, right uh about the uh custom car culture in the united states i think he wrote this in the early 60s maybe yeah and he he mentions in that book you know the the idea of customizing cars you know and and painting them these amazing colors and adding all this chrome and spending all this money doing it which is a working class you know hobby um Mm -hmm. looks to a kind of typical liberal, you know, enlightenment viewpoint, like a yeah. terrible waste of money by working people who can't afford it and also just in very bad taste. Yes. <laughs> and Wolf yeah, yeah. saw it empathetically as an art form and as something right. that these folks really got a lot of satisfaction from doing. And he he talks about how, you know, to liberals, the assumption is once you you know, free people from the shackles of capitalism and consumerism and all of this, they will, of course, you know, enroll in the new school for social research and start wearing yes. tweed jackets with <laughs> leather elbow patches and smoking a pipe and reading poetry. <laughs> but he says, no, they're probably going to want to buy a big motorboat or something. And, That's right. And we should not just dismiss people for doing what they actually spontaneously want to do. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. And this is kind of like... um uh the the dilemma I think many uh liberals faced with rap music mm-hmm. that, you know the poor oppressed african american ghetto people um now you know uh um uh, well there's when they become famous and rich or whatever they're not becoming public enemy and fighting the system but they're boasting about their yachts and mansions and right. Women, and it's like, oh, wait, um, what are we supposed to? Aren't we supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, isn't this supposed to be a progressive battle? And I, I don't mm-hmm. think they've they've wrapped their heads around it that no, exactly. know, the working class is not going to, you know, have a Marxist proletarian revolution. Exactly. And, and yeah. So what,
1: yeah, I, talk, so about this the, that? Uh, I yeah. talk about this in the book as well. This drives me crazy because to me, it recapitulates colonialism uh, mm-hmm. culturally, um, where you know, educated, privileged, white people look at hip hop culture. This certainly isn't true of all of them, but it's it's very common, I think, to look at it in a touristic kind of dilettantish way. Yeah, and and expect that, as you say, hip hop artists, of course, they must be political revolutionaries. But you know, distressingly many poor people would really prefer to be in the middle class or upper or, or rich. Yeah. And, and, or Trump-ish, right? I mean, well, or just, you, you know, if yeah. you're poor, if you're actually poor, if you're not a theoretical poor person, but if yeah. you're a, an actual real per, poor person, you don't want to be poor. That's and right. And you probably don't have time to be thinking about, you know, Marxist Leninist theory or, you know, absolutely. <laughs> uh, post-structuralist critiques of culture and all of this sort of stuff, right? You would really prefer to have a good job and make a decent living and get somewhere in life. And, you know, this is also reflected in the privileged liberals' use of the term bourgeois or bougie. And if you're actually poor, being bourgeois is a dream come true. That's right. Uh, Also, we see it in, and this really drives me crazy, is when you see Uh, uh, typically white Uh, black clad anarchists showing up in mostly African-American neighborhoods where the black people are demonstrating because they want better police, you know, fairer, more humane Mm -hmm. policing. And these outside anarchists come in. I think that the, you know, the right is exaggerating the threat from them, but they do exist. They come in and they want to overturn the capitalist system and they want to recruit these black people in, you know, their cause of, of world revolution. And to me, that is just, they are, they don't have to live in this neighborhood. They get to go home exactly. and and they are co-opting and appropriating. And I would say colonizing the culture or sorry, the cause of these black people who, who have far more serious and pressing issues to deal with. And in some cases, these are matters of life and death.
2: Absolutely, and you know, I, I want to just get into, you know, um, uh, one more little aspect about the um, noting, but that, that the the liberals' uh, tribe, if you want to put it that way, are are tribal as well, and and they haven't escaped it as, as they think. Um, that, a, a lot of these ideas in the counter enlightenment that you you talk about, I mean, definitely made their way into psychology and so forth. Um, Carl Jung and mm-hmm. and uh, Mythology and archetypes and all this into psychology and into advertising. Oh, and so absolutely. that like, so, so the liberal uh, and and one of the easiest people to market market to are to like the, the liberals, right? It's <laughs> easy to manipulate their you know like Apple in a sense oh, is Lord. one of the big. You know, it's like a cult, right? It, it's so easy to um uh to. To market to them, uh, you know, by tapping into their irrational side, um, yes. and they don't even know it, and, and and this understanding of of the irrational side that exists in all of us, and and will never go away. Um, I, I think that's something you uh, point to in in the book a lot. To to um, yeah, uh, mm. I I guess pointing t- toward a, a solution by the end. I know we're skipping over a lot, but I think that's kind of uh, how you you have it. Am I right
1: there? Yes, and you know, and to me, the the secret in all of this, the answer lies in awareness, not judgment. So yeah. that includes becoming aware of ourselves. Right and once and this is tremendously liberating. I found in my own life, you know, we are just, I think, wired to pass judgment on everything, to to Mm -hmm. decide. Certainly, culturally wired. I'm not sure if it's biological, but certainly in the Western tradition, uh, certainly going back to the Judeo-Christian tradition, if not before. um, Mm -hmm. This is another sort of bubble that we live in. We assume that it's as natural as breathing that we need to decide whether things are good or bad and whether people are good or bad. Yeah. And so on, excuse me, on the left, you know, we decide that the people on the right are, are bad or stupid basically. And in the extreme version, like Jacobinism or the Soviet union, they have to be either reeducated or ultimately killed because they're getting in the way of the progress of history. Um, But if you stop doing that, if you can just break that habit uh, and become aware then you become much more compassionate towards other people. You don't have to agree with them, yeah. but you become much more compassionate and your own life becomes better. And then turn the same awareness on yourself and become aware and compassionate about yourself. But in a very clear eyed way, discover your own prejudices, which frees yeah. you from them. <clears throat> and I agree, you know, we, we on the left like to think, especially, you know, educated liberals. We assume we're above all of this. We're, you know, we're w- way too sophisticated to be fooled by marketing, for example. But I discovered early on, this is no, this is it's almost scary in the book I talk about. It's like magic. And in many ways, it has a lot in common with ancient the casting of magical spells. If you show somebody an Apple product or Apple Mm -hmm. advertising, it's as if you're casting a magical spell. And and this works with all kinds of signifiers in our culture. And the ease with which you can get very highly educated, critical thinkers to fall into line and do what you want them to do. Simply by dangling the right symbols in front of them is is every bit as powerful as you know showing somebody on the right in your stereotypical view if you show them a you know a fancy new gun and in your yeah. sort of cliched view of <clears throat> these right wing fools you know they instantly need to have this gun because it'll make them feel powerful or whatever you think you know your your cliche is and but on our side, I mean just fall just spend some time on twitter and and my god the the conformity the moment. Some influential person on Twitter, you know, somebody who writes for the New Yorker or the Atlantic or the New York Times or something, all of which I read and admire. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the moment that somebody influential expresses, oh, this, you know, this is not cool. And this, on the other hand, is cool. Oh, my God. Everybody lines up in lockstep almost, it seems. And to find people who are actually willing to risk an original thought remains as it has throughout much of human history, a special experience when you come across right. a, a thinker who's willing no to step outside your own. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Because, you know, I, and I'll just share a little story again, like from the Bush era, right. I mean, I, I thought Bush was, you know, just incredibly, you know, stupid and, um, and I was you know, totally against the Iraq war, still am and, and whatnot. And, um, and, and, I, and then you know, but I discovered the whole straussian um uh, undercurrent and uh and i I couldn't believe that there were these really incredible thoughtful people i I may not agree with them, but they really had an intriguing argument, and look at. And, and, and a look at history and that whole sort of Straussian neocon mm-hmm. um, Alan bloom uh, kind of thing it was it was very 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 fascinating and and I started to to respect uh, you know a, a lot of these conservative people who wondering you know they're, they're putting on a stupid front but you know really yes. um, you know there there's this whole you know uh, network going on at Harvard and Yale and and you know and, and and these people there, and I just found it wow. You know, this this kind of a, a hidden thing, and even with Trump, like uh, a lot of the alt right and the dissident right, there are some interesting thinkers there as well yes. that that you can that you can see. Um, now, you know, you you may not agree with it or whatever, but but there, but once you can concede and admit the humanity intelligence of, of the other side that the the you know both of you uh, you know may want similar things maybe not exactly the same thing and uh, you know but but you have an assumption of good faith that not the other side is evil and they want to kill um, so they're against healthcare because they want to kill old people right. really does anybody really want to kill old people i mean uh, it, it, it's there's a lack of empathy there trying to understand why exactly. would why would they have such a polar opposite policy opinion to mind, let's take out the possibility that they're evil and the devil incarnate. Now, you know, So so that means we have to now put ourselves in their shoes. And I think that's what you're really
1: doing in the book, aren't you? Yes, exactly. And, and through uh, not engaging seriously with conservative thinking, we leave a void to be filled by the people who actually are operating in bad faith. Yeah, You know, I mean, Trump has, I don't believe, any political philosophy or even moral philosophy. He's just out for himself. He's a lifelong con man. However, that void was left there for him to step into because we abandoned the field, essentially. And and there are so many liberals who actually don't really understand what they're arguing against. And I ended up having to learn... Uh, about this through my work in politics and ironically, through advising clients on how to defeat arguments from the other side. And in in order to do that, you have to understand the other side's argument. Mm -hmm. And this led to a a principle for me that I recommend to everybody uh, who's interested, which is become familiar enough with your opponent's thinking so that you could argue persuasively for it. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you can't do that, you don't fully understand it. I mean, these people who have been conservatives all these centuries—they're not just all insane and stupid. You That's know, right. Some of them have been. Many of them have been very, very intelligent people. So, for example, you know, read the read the work of Hayek on economics. Don't just dismiss it. You know, uh, and you'll yeah. find that he's a he's a, a beautiful writer and writes very clearly, and. Some of the stuff he says, even as a liberal, you're going to have a hard time disagreeing with. And, That's right. Uh, if you do this and you come out the other side and you're still a liberal, well, in my opinion, you're you're a, a you're a, you're going to be a, a better liberal. It's kind of yeah. like if you if you get rich and you're still a liberal, then or you know if you run a business and you're still a liberal, then you know you really mean it. Um, yeah. And if you fully understand the other side, it'll then I think it makes your own liberalism deeper and, and frankly, more respectable intellectually. Liberals, and I get into this in the book as well, it's also just leads them to use language in ways they they use words as if those words are assumed to mean the same thing or to carry the same uh, freight of values and don't realize how much they're alienating people on the other side and, and essentially confirming their biases against us. So for example, I frequently hear my friends talking about collective action you know, we will right. do this collectively or as as the community. This is the community coming together. Or the, you know, the famous phrase it takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. Um, or global village, these kinds of concepts. Now, what they don't realize is to a conservative thinker, all of those things sound kind of scary. Yes. <laughs> and because conservatism believes that freedom must by definition start with the individual. Or else, the individual is being subsumed into the collective, and you know many uh, European and Eastern European, especially thinkers, this is where a lot of their their conservatism came from because they had seen what happens when collectivism goes insane, as it did in Mm -hmm. the Soviet Union, uh, and then you know through the domination of Central and Eastern Europe. And so, if you say collective as a self evident good, that does not sound that way to a conservative thinker. So you. If you want to establish a connection, you, you need to be more empathic, as you say, Kirk. Um, and, and imagine how your words are sounding to the other person. And again, you don't have to agree with them, but you do need to be compassionate and try to understand what their world looks like. Same with private property. Marx believed that, you know, people were uh, evil essentially because of private property. And once we got rid of private property, they'd all be nice to each other, basically, which to me now just seems incredibly naive and in yeah. the book i speculate about you know if marx had lived a little later and had encountered freud and 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 you know <laughs> and the the uh the death drive and civilization and its discontents i think it might i hopefully would have influenced marx to realize that essentially his view of human nature was was naive in my view um yeah. and To a conservative thinker, private property is not, as liberals often see it, a tool for capitalists to oppress working people. It's a defense of freedom if an individual has a right to own their own property, because throughout history, that was not true for most people. And it was only when they were able to own and defend their own piece of property as if it were their own little castle, uh, that freedom became possible. And so it's understanding these kinds of concepts so that you can actually engage with them uh, in some kind of useful way that I think is, is critical.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 kind of like being an anthropologist, you know, um, it's, it's putting yourself. It's a in, a, in a that different
1: that's, that's kind of true that our cultures are so <laughs> distinct that it is almost yeah. as if, or we're visiting from a different planet or something. And, and that's the the path towards healing this divide. Ultimately I think is what's not working for liberals is to continually keep having these enlightenment style debates based on facts and logic. And I'm I'm not at all saying that we should uh, abandon the Enlightenment tradition of reason because mm-hmm. it is precious. And it has led to so much of all the forms of progress that we've enjoyed, whether political or technological or whatever. Uh, and, however, and if I may add, it's not working. Side,
2: that's right. But I, may, I, I would also add that on the counter-Enlightenment side, e- even among the most radical that uh, – uh, purport to be, you know, the the most anti rational or, or or, you know, critical of rationality. Um, they still use rational arguments, right? So, so they they still have to, uh, you know, depend, you know, except for perhaps the most est- extreme ones that don't even write or, or anything like that. But, but the ones that that uh, reduce themselves to writing, are, you know, must must uh, deal with logos, and and um, so so they they too are not uh, beyond the. Uh, Enlight- enlightenment and, and the whole no. you know thing, uh, free speech and uh, the expression of ideas, uh, dissident ideas, right? They depend on that for them to express their dissident view. So, so 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 there is even on the other side, you know, they have to concede uh, their debt to um, enlightenment liberalism as well. So so then you start to move to common ground.
1: Absolutely, and a lot of that will become possible uh once people stop hating and fearing each other the way they do now on both sides uh this is why I call them patriots of two nations you know they each side sees itself as patriotic to their vision of America and sees the other side as a threat to that to america um, and that of course means that we have formed hostile tribes and we cannot communicate because we don't trust each other and so in the book, I argue that on our side, we need to for the moment set aside trying to win the argument and yeah. reestablish trust, which is going to be based on human connection and shared values. Because Absolute. I think you mentioned earlier, when it comes down to it, almost I would say all of us except for psychopaths share the most important values. And mm-hmm. you know, which would be that kindness is better than cruelty, you know, and yeah. and everybody in the uh, democratic world at least believes in equality before the law and mm-hmm. freedom uh and you know the nonviolent resolution of disputes and yes. a, a government run as honestly as we can manage so there you, you you won't you won't find people who disagree with those values even something as divisive as abortion and i use this as a, a test case in the book um there's no the two sides are are talking about completely different things one side is sees abortion as the murder of a child and the destruction of a soul Uh, Mm -hmm. and the other side sees it as a question of equality for women Mm -hmm. and you know counter enlightenment enlightenment views but neither of of the two people who might be arguing from those two sides actually wants to kill children and that's right both of them would agree the life of a child is absolutely precious Mm -hmm. and and so if you can start there and build the trust first it turns out once people trust each other they're much more likely to be influenced by each other even you know even people they they might disagree with very strongly they'll attach much more weight to their words uh, just because they know them and trust them, and that's essentially we're we're like strangers to each other. It's almost as if we're from different planets, and we have to establish that sense of trust where we can lay down the weapons, see each other as human beings who care about the same things. Essentially,
2: uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, one statistic I I um, always found interesting was that in looking at giving to charities, um, people who identify as conservatives give much more. To charities and people who identify as liberal um <laughs> which i think people would, you know and and, and all, all these things are important and it shows that the, there are you know similar ends that go that that both sides agree with but it's the means might be different um and and that's where you can have your your discussion you know as, as you say you know right um uh,
1: it's interesting if I could, you know, as an anecdote here in um, the central coast of California, um, one of uh, my company, uh, I have a communications consulting company called Boots Road Group here in Monterey. And mm-hmm. one of our clients uh, who I've also volunteered for because I, I just love what they're doing so much is called Rancho Cielo Youth Campus. And it's a, it's a program to help um, kids get out of gangs or avoid getting drawn into gangs because Salinas, California, in the Salinas Valley nearby here has an extremely serious gang problem. And Rancho Cielo is wonderfully effective. And it's in this beautiful ranch in the hills outside Salinas. And Essentially, what they're doing there is very liberal in terms of social policy. And yet it was founded by a lifelong Republican judge. When he he retired, he'd sent a lot of young men to prison and knew it just was not helping and was actually making things worse. And he got together with a lot of his rich Republican friends. And these people are very conservative and they weren't thinking ideologically. They just wanted to help. And, and they created this wonderful program that I think could be a national model. And it's been very, very successful. Uh, and as I say, it's, you know, if you look at what they're doing, it's pretty darn liberal, but they don't look at it that way. They look at it as something that works that will help their community, which they deeply care about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's both the, um, you know, the, the counter enlightenment and, and the enlightenment, you know, Mm -hmm. um, uh, And, and, and it's this, it's two ways of, I guess, showing a care for humanity, Because the the counter-enlightenment see, you know, see, see the, um, the non-rational sides of humanity, you know, the, um, community and faith and tradition and beauty as, as being essential to realizing our humanity while the enlightenment side seeing reason and, um, you know, freedom and rationality and debate as as being essential as well and but they're not mutually exclusive you know um
1: no (laughs) exactly and uh, i'm gonna i think write a whole separate book about the influence of advertising and marketing in general on on culture and democracy because it's it's (laughs) it's terrifying but um you know, and I i don't mean to suggest, of course, that people who are primarily in the counter-enlightenment worldview are incapable of reason. You know, in, in, in both cases, we sort of have a home base in either one of them, but all of us uh, partake in both modes of thinking. But it's important, I believe, for us to be aware of that and understand that we should integrate both forms of thinking. Sometimes it works better to be intuitive and emotional mm-hmm. or to value tradition <clears throat> or to just have faith. Uh, whether or not you're religious and other times it's better to just be driven by the data. Um, That's right. And, and, you know, another area where I think we liberals uh, tend to be blind is that this over reliance on rationality can take the soul out of things in a very Mm -hmm. destructive way. And I address this in the book as well. And I mentioned earlier in our conversation that the worst examples of this are things like Jacobinism or um, the Soviet union Uh, I, I did, I refer to that as the enlightenment gone mad and Nazism is the counter enlightenment gone mad. Um, Mm -hmm. but it also happens in less obviously destructive ways, but they are still destructive. For example, the rise of bureaucracy is a very enlightenment phenomenon where you rationalize government processes, which in many ways Mm -hmm. is a good idea because it reduces corruption and makes things generally more effective. Um, however, you can get these soulless bureaucracies that are self-preserving and, you know, in Kafka, writes about this very effectively and it turns out yeah. he was he was quite prophetic and in my yeah. work for example I've done a lot of work in in gang violence which is one of the things that led me to rancho cielo um it, i've I've been deeply disturbed by the role of bureaucracy in perpetuating the gang violence problem right and many other social problems because mm. of the extreme difficulty of breaking down bureaucratic silos Right and, and nobody wants to not be effective, but on the other hand, all the incentives militate against cooperation and collaboration and, and data sharing. And you know what? If it involves the elimination of departments or the merger of departments, um, it's almost impossible to make progress. Now, again, nobody is consciously, I hope, choosing their own job or you know, their own bureaucratic power structure and budget over actually solving a problem as serious as gang violence. But the fact remains, it's one of the top obstacles to making progress on a problem, by the way, that we actually know how to address very, very effectively. It's not mysterious what to do. It's been done successfully multiple times. And, and one of the most serious obstacles is bureaucracy, which ultimately is a product of enlightenment rationalism.
2: Yeah, and and it shows the embeddedness of irrationality even within rational structures. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know we we're approaching the end, and I know you have to go. Uh, It's been a fascinating discussion, and we went off in uh, all little nooks and crannies. Um, But there's another uh, uh, important concept in your book which we didn't talk about, and I'd like you to elaborate on it. Is Why do you say that Trump was inevitable? What do you mean by that? What was your, what's your argument about that?
1: Oh, yes. So, yes, the book is called Patriots of Two Nations, Why Trump Was Inevitable and and What Happens Next. And I realized he was inevitable. A lot of people think, well, maybe this division started relatively recently, like with Newt Gingrich in the 90s or, you know, the turmoil of the 60s. But given this split between the Enlightenment and counter-Enlightenment worldviews, uh, somebody like Trump, I think was going to come along and he would come along in this form at this particular time because of uh, the role of media and entertainment and consumerism and distraction um, in our lives would enable a television star uh, to specifically a reality show star who's in my view a a con man uh, to become president because he's almost a perfect expression of where we are historically and culturally There have been many other uh, resurgences of the counter-enlightenment in American history. And the most violent one was the Civil War, which was fought Mm -hmm. primarily over slavery, of course. But it was also a revolt of the counter-enlightenment South against the Enlightenment North. And, uh, you know, the history of evangelism, all sorts of things. Some of the other things we've touched on are examples of this conflict between the counter-enlightenment and the Enlightenment. But. Somebody like Trump was going to come along and he's almost the perfect expression, as I say, of of this particular moment. And oddly enough, perhaps unsurprisingly, Hillary Clinton was enlightenment to a fault. You know, she's very, very qualified, very smart, but it was as if she was campaigning on bullet points and and was essentially what... I mean, that
2: was a a criticism. Yeah. And she
1: acknowledges it herself. Um, And so the shock, you know, the shock that I felt and many people felt, how could such a qualified person lose to such an obviously unqualified one? Well, there you go. The Enlightenment lost to the counter-Enlightenment this time. And, you know, Max Weber, uh, the great German sociologist, described Mm -hmm. different forms of political authority. And one of them was legalistic, which is sort of the classic civil servant. And I would say that's Hillary Clinton, symbolically at least. And whereas another one is charismatic, and that's Trump. Whether you like him or not, he's almost all charisma. And you know, essentially, no substance. Uh, so, I, that it, for all those reasons, I think somebody like him was inevitable.
2: And you, you know, I, as you explain that, you, what came to my mind from the pop culture is that the movie *Idiocracy*. Oh yes, um, right where the the uh, President Camacho, the, uh, yes. the the former porn star reality show, whatever, we became president. We're not that far. From no, it's, that terri- in reality.
1: it's terrifyingly, <laughs> terrifyingly accurate. If yeah, anybody has not I,
2: seen idiocracy, they need to it. see it. Yeah, he predicted it because uh, because he read the history. Yes. you know, he, 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 and which is kind of what you're saying. And and, and it's like you guys saw. You know, we're seeing the same thing in, in in different ways. You know, um, uh, so in, in a sense, he, he predicted you know a Trump-like figure because uh, because he probably thought it was inevitable as well. Just yes. like just like what you're saying yeah 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 so um as we uh, close off the interview, uh, I'd just like to ask you, what would you like to leave your readers with after going through your book?
1: Well, I hope uh they'll be left with an appreciation for the necessity of and power of awareness, as I was saying a little while ago. Mm-hmm. That we need to set aside judgments for a while. This moralistic judging f- from both sides of the other side as ignorant, evil, corrupt, uh, unpatriotic, et cetera. We just have to stop. And somebody, if if the other side doesn't want to stop first, we can start with, we, st- we can stop first. But we need to pursue awareness, start from awareness and compassion. It doesn't mean forgiving bad behavior, but. You can find people of good faith on the other side and stop judging them and try harder to just imagine the world from their point of view and reestablish human connection based on shared values. Excellent.
2: Well, I want to thank you so much for this interview. It's been really informative and enjoyable.
1: Oh, I loved it, Kirk. I, it was just been a sheer pleasure talking to somebody who's obviously so smart and well-educated and to be able to explore all of these different aspects of it and you've said things that have sparked new ideas for me so I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm glad to hear that.
2: Once again the book is Patriots of Two Nations, Why Trump Was Inevitable and What Happens Next and we've been speaking to the author Spencer Critchley. It's been a a really uh, insightful uh, conversation and journey, and I recommend that you pick up the book. I I I think it's a it's very important uh, um, for people to understand what he's arguing here and uh, and prescribing. So I want to thank you, our listeners, as well, um, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.